Shabbat Shalom. Let's turn to Ivrim, the book of Hebrews. Get right into the text, chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Mashiach, let us go on laying again the foundation of Teshuvah, repentance from dead works and of faith toward Elohim. Text today, we're going to have the beginning, we're going to be looking at the peril of getting stuck and not progressing in the faith. And how many people have you seen, maybe yourself, at some point in your walk where you felt that you've not been progressing, that you've been stuck? The peril of not progressing. The author is going to address that with our audience. Then he's going to talk about the better estimate, the better estimate of that which we're to press into. And then he's going to talk about Yahweh's infallible purpose in Messiah. His infallible purpose in Messiah and that we're to press in toward the goal. But first of all, we have to go forth and obtain that which was once delivered, the faith once delivered to the saints. Because what we're going to see in today's text is that these believers that the author is addressing, they felt that because of the oncoming persecutions that were happening with the Romans in Judea, especially surrounding Jerusalem, that they could go back to the temple system that they could draw back into the Levitical regime and they could then escape the persecution. And that another time, once the persecution had subsided, that then they could make a recommitment and to the faith and be almost like saved again. So this was what was happening in the context of chapter 6 that our author is addressing. That these believers thought that they could return to the Levitical regime regime, excuse me, and be saved again later once the persecution had passed and that this new salvation, when they made a new commitment, it would erase their past apostasy. But that isn't so. You see, our author is trying to get our audience to do what? The same thing that Yahweh wants us all to do. Press on towards spiritual maturity. Press on towards spiritual maturity. And when things get tough, when you feel the persecutions coming, don't think that you have the option to draw back so that the persecutions go over you. And then another time that you can press back in and make a new commitment. Because that option is not available to the devout holy brethren. You see, if you think that you can do that, and many people have made the mistake of thinking that they can do that in the faith, then the danger is that you will remain in a permanent state of immaturity. And how many of you have seen friends that haven't pressed on as you have pressed on, and they remain five, ten years later in a permanent state of immaturity? And you're like learning Paleo-Hebrew. We're all confused. We're all learning the name. and We're praying. What is it? I mean, but we're pressing on. We're pressing on. 
and others remain in the elementary principles of Moshiach. I think today's the state of the antinomian church today is that they have remained in a present state of immaturity because they have not pressed on and therefore are happy and satisfied hearing the same gospel messages each and every Sunday. Permanent state of immaturity. Therefore, leaving the elementary principles of the teaching of Moshiach, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of Teshuvah from past evil works and of Emunah, faith towards Yahuwah, of the teachings of Mikvot, that's baptisms, and of the laying on of hands, and of our resurrection from the dead, and of eternal mishpat, judgment. So in these opening verses of chapter 6, we get the list of what? This is a list right here of the principles of the faith, the elementary principles of the faith that we should press on past that we should leave behind and press on to maturity. Now notice that there are six, there are six things and they come in sets of twos. There's six things and they come in sets of twos. The first pair deals with conversion. The second pair is going to deal with the Levitical hierarchy. And the third pair, it's going to deal with future events or what we call eschatology. These are tantamount, basically, the ABCs of the faith. These are the ABCs of the faith. These are basic doctrines that need to be left behind so that we can press on to maturity. But as we go into these basic doctrines, you can see that this is pretty much where the antinomian church rests. And they have not gone further than this. And you can be in the, the, the Hebrew or the Torah movement for a decade and you could go back to church on, the, on a Sunday and you would pick up where you left off 10, 15, 20 years ago because they're going to be stuck in these elementary principles of the faith because that's the spiritual maturity of the average Christian. It's a very, very, very sad testimony. But the author asks us, admonishes us, leave these things behind. Doesn't mean they're null and void, or heaven forbid. But these are the ABCs of the faith. Let's now press on into the maturity of the faith. What you're going to find, though, is very interesting. These ABCs of the faith, these aren't distinctive to Christianity, but they're actually from the Tanakh. So this isn't some... 325 onward Christian invention, these are from the Tanakh, these very elementary principles for the new believer in Yahusha. They're not distinctive to Christianity, but they find their origin in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, and they were already in place in the Orthodox Jewish community. These are existing Jewish practices that are used as the foundation of laying again, not laying again, a foundation of repentance from dead works. Because this was for those that what? The faith that was once delivered. 
to all the saints. We need to press into that. So let's look at these six things that come in sets of two. Number one, in the King James Version, it says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Now, the repentance part is emphasizing the negative aspect of the conversion process. The repentance part is emphasizing the negative aspect of the conversion process, a turning away from something. They need to be what? Turning away from the Levitical regime, the Levitical book of the law system. We know that that was temporary. It had already come to an end when? When there was the transference of the priesthood by Yochanan HaMiyat Matbil, John the Immerser, to the Mashiach. There was the transference. And at that point, you start to see things changing throughout the gospel narrative. What we can see now is that we are in this new covenant, or referring back to covenant Torah fidelity, what James calls the royal law. It's interesting because the Greek word that's used for dead dead works is the Greek word nekron ergon, And many, many Christian commentators, they do all kinds of theological gymnastics to try and link this phrase with Torah. Well, the Torah is the dead works that you need to be moving on past. But they don't understand the distinction between covenant Torah, that is for you today, and the book of the law, Levitical hierarchy that was added after the sin of the golden calf. So they're half right and half wrong. And that is the narrow road. And then we've got other people that will say, no, it's all Torah, Torah, Torah. We do all of the Torah. There's no separation whatsoever. Not realizing the distinction between Yahweh's perfect will royal covenant Torah that was given to Abraham and the patriarchs, that's for you, and then added proscription law that was added for transgression as a mediator and a tutor until the time of Reformation when the Mashiach would come and transfer them out of the book of the law system into the new fidelity covenant royal Torah, which is for his people today. So what we can see, that first aspect is not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. The second one is faith toward Yahweh. Now, of course, this is the positive side of conversion. It's talking about a turning to, a turning to, a once and for all what? making that once and for all commitment to Yahuwah. It's that once and for, um, for all commitment to Yahuwah. And how do you do it? Through faith in Moshiach. The third thing, the third elementary principle, is the teachings of mikvaot. It's in the plural here. Baptisms in the plural is how it comes up in the Greek. We have um, baptismon. That's plural. It's not singular. And this is where the Christian church is very wrong, saying that you have this one-time baptism, whereas really you're you're to be given to ritual immersion frequently and often. And when they were, if you, in the excavations down at Qumran, there were many, many mikvah pools, because ritual immersion, sanctification, is an ongoing walk in the Holy Brethren's lifestyle. And this is very important 
It comes across in some of the translations as abulations or cleansing rites, as in the Dead Sea Scrolls community. It's about holy living, an ongoing holy lifestyle. This goes beyond the one-time Christian baptism, and it goes beyond the ceremonial act of temple purification. This is speaking of cleansing in preparation for the messianic age. Isn't that what we're to be doing right now? Aren't we to be constantly looking at ourselves, looking at the sin within us, and confessing it, and going and having ritual immersion, and just washing off the garbage to be crass? To be crass, but truly, we need to be pressing in because there's this ever-present expectation of being in his presence, and we want to be in a what? A holy, undefiled state. A one-time baptism. Many times we need to be going for ritual immersion. Ritual immersion. It speaks of, again, the Messianic age. And you can see that is referenced in Yehezkel, Ezekiel, chapter 36 and verse 25. It says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. And maybe this is where the Catholicos got the sprinkling with the the holy water. I once once went to a funeral, you know, and... um, they had, the, they had the guy lying out, and all of a sudden, I thought, that, I thought the vicar was going to draw down on me, you know. And he pulled out from inside of his garment with a little flask. I thought it was his nipping flask, because, you know, in England, the vicar's always having a nip. Anyway, he pulls out his flask, and he's like, he got like a little flask of the holy water. I mean, he was armed and ready to go with the sprinkling. Whereas, you know, in the regular Calvary Chapel, it's a full-on Duncan in the swimming pool with the chlorine and all the chems. I'm not into that either. Ma'im ha'im, living water. I like full immersion in the living water. But these are the elementary principles. Number one, not laying again the foundation of repentance of dead works. Let's progress past this. Faith towards Yahuwah. Number two. We all remember our conversion experience through Moshiach. This is extremely important, but we move past that. Immersion, ritual immersion, this is an elementary principle. We need to move past this. The laying on of hands is the fourth thing. We need to do this, but also understand this is an elementary principle. The laying on of hands. This was for imparting blessings and healing and an appointing of an post of a person. Appointing somebody in a position or to function within the believing community. It's really a Torah principle of identifying their anointing. Hands would be laid on a person. The laying on of hands is also an important part of the very first century faith. We can see that from ordination all the way through to the intimacy of transfer of guilt. You see that in the book of Vaikra, Leviticus. And this verse right here implies that miraculous healings were actually happening during the first century faith in the congregation because these things were what? 
These were things that the congregation had to move beyond. It was an elementary principle. And let's look at it today. There's a church that's very famous or infamous, depending on your view of it, local, semi-local, in, I believe it's Northern California, called Bethel. Well, there's apparently all this supernatural stuff that's coming out of there. Uh, Many years ago, I made a, a trip down to a supernatural congregation in San Jose. But these things are important. It's important. But if you get stuck in that, it's an elementary principle. And then people are literally chasing the miracles, chasing the healings each and every week. How many times can one guy get healed? of the same thing each and every week. And then you set up this whole idea within the community that you can function in a supernatural manner. But then when you get these believers off by themselves in the world, they're they're little sheeple. They, They can't function because they've done it in a herd mentality. This is an elementary principle. Yes, we believe in healings. Yes, we move in the Ruach HaKodesh, but this is not the foundation of the body. This is an elementary principle that we should just put into effect, but it cannot be what the whole ministry is about. If it is, you're going to have spiritually immature believers. And that's the state of these supernatural gifting churches. They get stuck. Because this is something that should be an expectation. We should do it with full confidence, but it's not so woo that we build a whole ministry on it. Does that make sense? It's an elementary principle. It's an elementary principle. Now we go on to the fifth thing, the resurrection of the dead. That's why before I got into this year's cycle going through the book of Hebrews, I wanted before Sukkot to sit down and do a teaching on the resurrection because I understood, yes, Death and resurrection are important, but they are elementary principles that we need to make sure that are put out there, but we move on past them. We're not going to spend a year going on and rehashing the resurrection of the dead. It's an elementary principle. Number six, that of eternal judgment. It's talking about the great white throne judgment and the lake of fire. So again, these are important but elementary principles. And with all of this, with all of this, these six things, Yahweh will not force or compel any of us to go on to maturity. You have to make the decision yourself to leave these elementary principles behind. And that's what the author is admonishing his audience. Let's look at verse three. And this will we do. If the master Yahuwah permits, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Ruach HaKodesh and have tasted the Tov, the good word of Yahuwah, and the powers of the Olam Haba, and that they fall away to renew them again to Teshuvah, repentance, seeing they crucify by themselves the Son of Yahuwah again and put him to an open shame. The audience has experienced five spiritual privileges. We've just read it. 
five spiritual privileges. There's something impossible for those who experience these five spiritual privileges to do. If they fall away, you cannot renew them again to repentance. If you've experienced these five spiritual privileges, if you fall away, you cannot be renewed again to repentance. Number one, a once and for all, once and for all enlightenment. What's that talking about? This is, there's a one-time regeneration. There's a one-time in your life that you get to be regenerate. You are regenerated. One time. That conversion happens just the one time. There is something impossible to do again and again. It's a one time. That moment when you came into the light. The Greek word for once here emphasizes something that isn't repeated. The second spiritual privilege they have tasted the heavenly gift. This isn't talking about a little nibble. Oh, I have a little nibble of the heavenly gift. No, this is talking about to partake of the Moshiach fully. You don't just kind of taste, but you partake of him fully. No nibbling of a few dried crackers on a Sunday, but a full, full Passover meal once a year where you fully consume and identify. You know, Esau, what did he do? He sold his birthright for what? A bowl of pottage. And in the text, it says that he swallowed it. And in the Hebrew, it means he swallowed it, that pottage, with veracity. We're to do the same thing with the Mashiach's body. We are to swallow the Mashiach's body with a veracity, with a hunger, a desire. But that begins by coming to his Sabbaths and his feasts where we can partake of the full cup of Mashiach and the full body of Mashiach as often as you would do, which you would do the Passover once a year. The second thing, the second, second Spiritual privilege. They have tasted the heavenly gift. The third thing. They are partakers of the Ruach HaKodesh. This means that they really participate in the Ruach HaKodesh. We can't be satisfied with just coming close in the vicinity of the Ruach HaKodesh or being around somebody else who's got the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh. You often see that. But we must want to move toward really participating together because it has to be a vital relationship, doesn't it? We need that vital relationship with the Ruach HaKodesh. The fourth spiritual privilege that you want to taste is the good word of Yahuwah. The good word of Yahuwah. Taste of the spoken word. We need to taste of the spoken word. We need to hear special utterances to ourselves or through prophecy and tongue in the congregation. We need to be a part of the spoken word, the special utterances. This isn't a um, passive participation, but this is personal character experience. And the fifth spiritual privilege is we need to taste the powers of the age to come. 
taste the powers of the age to come. This is talking about to taste the power of the messianic kingdom, to taste the power of the millennium. This is truly the conversion experience. These five spiritual experiences witness to us and to others what? That our faith is genuine. That we have a genuine faith. Just like Caleb, what do we need to do? We need to go up at once and possess the land. Do you want to possess everything that he has for you? Go up at once and possess the land. This is an exhortation by our author to the audience to enter into the faith promised to the authors and our generation. Do you want to go into it? Look at verse 6. And they fall away to renew them again to Teshuvah, seeing They crucify by themselves the son of Yahuwah again, and they put him to an open shame. The Greek word here for falling away is only found here and nowhere else in the whole Brit Hadashah, and it means to fail to follow through on a commitment. That's it. So you had these five spiritual privileges, but then you failed to follow through on a commitment means that you've fallen away. How many people are taught this? Right? You fail to follow through on your commitment. I can list I can list so many people over the years that I've seen these five spiritual privileges and then they fail to follow through on the commitment. This is very dangerous territory to be. Why why is not that why isn't this taught more? This is exactly what the text is saying. This is extremely sobering to our audience, sobering to me, and it should be sobering to you. Have you experienced one, two, three, four, five? If you have, then you are committed. You need to just press on. If you haven't, then you need to think about your relationship with Yahuwah. Either way, it's serious stuff, is it not? There is no escaping for any of us of the seriousness of this text. Either way, either way, you are committed and you are committed. There is no option for you but to press on. Or if you've experienced four out of the five, you've got some big problems. You need to re-evaluate where your commitment is. It means to fail to follow through on a commitment or to fall away from an accepted path or standard. And what is the accepted path or standard that our author has spent a whole chapter communicating thus far? The accepted path is royal covenant Torah. The accepted standard is the high priest of the Malkit Zedek. If you fail to follow that path and that standard, you are in danger of falling away. The narrow road that leads to life. That standard has been set by the Kohen Haggadal after the order of Malkit Zedek. It is royal covenant Torah. One thing's clear, if they do fall away, to renew them again unto repentance is what? What is it? It's bloody impossible. Because Moshiach bled once. Once for all, 
And if you say he needs to again, then you put him unto an open shame. Now let's return to a character in the scriptures who fell away after experiencing all of these five spiritual privileges. Because it's right there for us to see as a warning. But again, often not taught. You see, the scripture is amazing. Gives us teaching lessons, then gives us examples. But we have to link everything together. But too often the ministers are too lazy. They won't connect the dots. We are given five examples of five spiritual spiritual privileges that once you experience the five spiritual privileges then you cannot fall away if you do fall away it's going to be impossible to do what renew you again to faith the first one a once and for all enlightenment the second one Tasting the heavenly gift. The third one, be a partaker of the Ruach HaKodesh. The fourth one, tasting the good word of Yahuwah. And the fifth one, tasting the powers of the age to come. If you experience those spiritual privileges and you fall away, it is impossible to renew you again unto faith. And now we're going to go into the book, I believe it's Marseh Shlachim, the book of Acts. And we're going to find and see an example of one character who fell away after coming into enlightenment. He tasted the heavenly gift. He partook of the Ruach HaKodesh and he actually tasted the good word and he tasted the powers of the age to come. He believed. He believed when he heard the gospel. He was mikvahed and he followed the disciple whose teaching, whose teaching had actually convinced him. And after he presumably received the Ruach HaKodesh, when apostolic hands were laid upon him, He was pronounced still to be in the gall of bitterness and bound in iniquity. Turn to Acts chapter 8 verse 9. Of course, it's the infamous Shimon Magnus, Simon Magnus. He tasted the five spiritual privileges and he fell away. And it was impossible for him to be renewed again. There was a certain man, chapter 8, verse 9, called Shimon Magnus, who in the past, in the same city, used sorcery, and he bewitched the people of Shimron, claiming to be, I am, to whom they all prayed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of Eloah. And to him they paid careful attention because for a long time he had amazed them with sorceries. He had amazed them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip proclaiming the things concerning the Malchut of Yahuwah and the name of Yahusha, Hamashiach, they were immersed both men and women. Then Shimon himself believed also. And when he was immersed, he continued with Philip. And he was impressed beholding the Nisim, the, the great wonders and the signs that were done. Now when the Shlechim, the apostles who were in Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, heard that Shomron had received the word of Yahuwah, they sent them to Kepha and to Yochanan. 
Verse 15, who when they had come down made tefillah prayer for them that they might receive the Ruach HaKodesh. Do you see these privileges are being portrayed in the very text? You can number them as we're going through. Verse 16, for until then he had not fallen upon them. They only were immersed in the name of the Savior, Yahusha. Then they laid their hands on him and they received the Ruach HaKodesh. And when Shimon saw that through laying on of the Shlechim, the apostles' hands, that the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that on whoever I lay hands, he may receive the Ruach HaKodesh. But Kepha said unto him, Your money perishes with you, because you have thought that the gift of Yahuwah may be purchased with money. You have nothing to do with our emunah, nothing to do with our faith. For your heart, your lev is not right in the sight of Yahuwah. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness and make tefillah, prayer to Yahuwah, if perhaps the thoughts of your heart may be forgiven you. For I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and bound in iniquity. Now, according to history, Simon Magnus showed himself in the following decades to be the most wicked opponent of the faith. He became the most wicked opponent of the faith in the first century. Shimon Magnus fell into the category of experiencing all five spiritual privileges, then falling away with what? The impossibility of being renewed again. And history testifies to that fact. He realized how good the word of Yahuwah was when he heard it come from Philip's lips. He realized how good the word of Yahuwah was. And then he was dazzled. How was he dazzled? He saw the great signs. He saw the great signs. He saw the powers of the age to come. Those that repudiate the salvation procured by Mashiach will find none anywhere else. There's none anywhere else. Now, the major difference between Calvinists and Armenians today pertains to what? The issue of salvation. Free will, chosen, elect. And they argue and have been for centuries. The Calvinists over here, the Armenians over here. Well, who's saved? Are you saved? Well, are you elect? It's just the elect. Were you called? Are you chosen? And it, you can just get bogged down and bogged down in all of this highbrow church theology. Well, did Yahusha, did he die just for the elect? Or maybe he died for the whole world. And the debates begin and the debates go on till the early hours of the morning. But both Calvinists and Armenians miss the main thrust of the Bible because they both get bogged down in their theological schools of discipline. When in reality, the answer is, I'm Israel. Hi, I'm Israel. 
Hi, the life of Israel, the people of Israel. That's the reality. And what do I mean? You see, Yahusha is the kinsman, kinsman redeemer from Genesis 15. He's the kinsman redeemer from Genesis 15. He pays the death penalty position and thus he has what? He has the right to buy back the land and he gets to inherit everything that's within the land. This is the important teaching on the kinsman redeemer after he pays the death penalty position of Genesis chapter 15. And what Calvinism and Arminianism have been struggling with in their theology for hundreds of years is they've been arguing over what? They're arguing over the land. They're arguing over the land when in reality, that's not even what's in view here. I'm getting some holy looks right now. You're wondering where I'm going with this. But we know throughout the scripture, that agriculture is what? It's analogous with us. We're the wheat, some of the tares. There's harvesting, there's pressing, there's threshing. So we see these come forth in the parables of the word. The word is displayed in agricultural parables, is it not? It's displayed in agricultural parables. And in the agricultural parables is the answer that the Calvinists and the Arminians have been searching for and bickering over for centuries. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, Yahweh says, the land is mine. Who does the land belong to? The land is Yahweh's. Now, He gave it, he leased it to Adam, did he not? But what did Adam do? He was supposed to shamar. He was supposed to guard the garden, but he didn't guard the garden, and he let in the serpent, and the serpent took the rights from him. He was supposed to tend the garden, but he relinquished the land to Satan. Then we find in Leviticus chapter 25, Vaikra 25 verse 10, at the Yovel, at the Jubilee, return to your possession. Well, what is our possession? At the Jubilee, believers, at the Yovel, at the release, the year of release, we're supposed to return to our possession. What's our possession? Gan Eden. We're supposed to be making our way back to the Garden of Eden, which is what? The book of the law, Levitical hierarchy, was that in the Garden of Eden? Did Adam, did Noah, did Abraham, did the Jacob, Israel, did any of them know of a temple here on earth with the Levitical book of the law administration? Not at all. Did they walk in Yahweh's Torah? Is Yahweh's Torah perfect? Did the Torah that was in framework from the beginning all the way through to the golden calf, did it include any, any permissive will actions of Yahuwah or was it all perfect from the foundations of the world? That's what we're to walk in. Because what we're going to see is we're to press back and grab our inheritance after 
the Jubilee year of release. You return to your possession, which is Eden, and you return to your family. What's your family? The Catholic Church? The Calvinists? The Armenians? Your family is that you are the flock of Yaakov, Israel, Jacob. So I'm building a theme here because we're talking about eternal salvation. We're talking about the chosen, the elect. This is what chapter 6 is all about. So let's go back to our Calvinist and Armenian dispute. Did Yahusha die only for the elect or did he die for the whole world? Big question. John 3.16 seems to answer it very clearly. For Yah so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whosoever, the whosoever shall believe on him shall have everlasting life. The universalists say, the Unitarian church, the whole world. Ecumenalism. Everybody. Everybody. But then we find out things start to narrow down when we look at the whole scope of Scripture. We go to Matthew chapter 13, verse 37, and the the Talmudim, the disciples, they come to Mashiach and they say, can you tell us the answer to the parable about the tares? And he tells you and he defines the world and he says what? The field is the world. The field is the world. So now we're going to get into land redemption and we're going to see that Mashiach died for a specific reason because he wanted to redeem the, redeem the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son is what is trotted out before you. But when you actually start to dig down and compare scriptures, you're going to find a mystery that really shouldn't be a mystery. It should be an elementary principle of the faith. Chapter 6. That we should know, but then we should move on past. Matthew 13, verse 34. Yahusha, we find, redeems the field. But why does he redeem the field? So it doesn't pass out of the family of Jacob which is Israel. It's the law of redemption that we're going to find is at stake here. The next of kin, the next of kin has the right to redeem it back. But Adam, what did he do with our inheritance? He squandered it. He gave our inheritance, the land away. Yahusha purchased back the field, which is the world. The world is the field, synonymous terms, John 3, 16. It's not that everything in the field is redeemed. And that's the mistake. It's not that everything in the field is redeemed, but the field is. The field is. The owner then, once he has the field, what can he do with the field? Whatever he wants. And that's the point. And that's the point. Whatever he wants to do with the field. He purchased the field 2,000 years ago. Why? So that he can begin clearing it. So he can begin clearing it. And when will he begin clearing it? With the sickle harvest of Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. And when does that happen? 
That happens, of course, after Revelation chapter 5, once the law of redemption scroll that Yochanan the beloved, he couldn't find anybody to open it. But then Moshiach comes and he has the right of redemption, the title deed to the land, the world, the field, to open the scroll. And at that point on, he's going to begin to clear the field. Because he loves the world so much? No. Because he's going to gather up with the sickle harvest and he is going to take that sickle and the tares are going to be so proud that they're going to be just upright. But the wheat that is producing pressed on past the elementary principles of Christ is going to be producing so much fruit that they are heavy laden with fruit that they bow down. But the tares, which are stuck on the elementary principles of Messiah, are upright and... I don't want to know about your feast of the Lord. I don't want to know about how his name. I don't want to know about Shabbat. We're doing the Sunday thing, and that's fine for us. The elementary... That's it. Proud, and you try and share anything more in the word, and proud, proud, proud. And the sickle harvest comes in and he gathers up those tares into a bundle and he burns them. Why? Because he's looking for something within the field. And if you have something that's lost within a field, the first thing you have to do is clear the field so that you can find it. Otherwise, you can't see the wood for the trees. What is Moshiach doing with the field? He's not purchased the field because he loves the field. It's because there's something in the field that he's looking for. This is the key issue. Psalm 135 verse 4. For Yahuwah has chosen Yaakov, Jacob for himself. Israel is his special. What? Israel is his special treasure. Yahuwah's remnant isn't rescued without cost. The treasure is buried within the field. We're buried and hidden within the world. He purchased the world, the field, not because he so loves the world, but because he's looking for the treasure that's buried within the nations. That is the family of Jacob, his special treasure, Israel. And what he's going to do is release the redemption scroll, saying that he has the title deed. Those that have not pursued the faith, that are stuck in the elementary principles of Messiah, are the tares that will be upright and proud, that the Revelation 14 sickle harvest they'll come in and just take those tears down because the holy brethren are producing the fruits of holy righteousness they've pursued the faith they pressed on past the five the elementary principles and they are heavy laden with fruit that they are bowed low you can easily bundle those tears up burn them and destroy them so now he can find his buried treasure Israel within the field. That ends the debate of Calvinism and Arminianism because the elect is who? The treasure. The field is the means to the end. He had to buy the field because he needed to do whatever he wants to do with it to get what's buried and hidden 
since the tribes were scattered throughout the globe. And you and I realize that we're that treasure. And how do we even get that knowledge? Because we're so smart? No, because we decided we were convicted to press on past the elementary principles. And if you don't, you get stuck and you'll never realize that you're the treasure. And you will be so proud when anything different or controversial to the doctrines of men is taught to you, you won't accept it. And that pride hardens the heart and you become more and more like a tear and you're less able to bear the fruit of humble, humble righteousness. Let's go on to verse 6. And they fall away to renew them again to Teshuvah. Seeing then, they crucify by themselves the son of Yahuwah again, and they put him to an open shame. Now, I'll run through this quickly because this is a very important verse. Traditionally, over the past 2,000 years, there's been 10 interpretations to this verse because it does cause so much trouble in theological circles. So let's look at the traditional 10 interpretations to this verse. In fact, let me back up. Let's look at the traditional nine interpretations of this verse, and then I'll give you my 10th interpretation of this verse, and you guys see. So, number one. We're going to give the interpretation of chapter 6, verse 6. Number one, these are merely professing believers. They're not real believers. They were just professors. They were never possessors. They wanted fellowship, not discipleship. Number two, they were truly saved and then... They were truly lost. And if so, once lost again, they can never be saved again. The third interpretation of this verse, this one's really lame. This one must be from the Unitarian Church or something. The word impossible, it really means difficult. It's got to be a Unitarian Church one, don't you think? The fourth interpretation of this verse, this speaks of someone who is habitually falling away and renews himself again and again and again until Yahweh says, enough, you're done, enough. Number five, this refers to the Levitical sacrifices. Since we have an altar outside the gate, it's impossible to go back to the old altar system and find any kind of renewal. Number six, this verse is simply hypothetical. It doesn't say it could happen. It simply states that if it should happen, well, then this would be the results. Kind of convenient. Number seven, it only refers to works and rewards. Number eight, It refers to a loss of future earthly blessings as a result of the falling away. A believer wouldn't lose his salvation, but would lose future earthly blessings. That must be from the prosperity gospel people. Number nine, the audience are merely professors who are in danger of going back into the temple system sacrifice, which are not available to them anymore. And as a result, they'll die 
in the destruction that's going to come on Jerusalem, and we know it did in 70. And my interpretation of this verse, the 10th one added, is these are actual believers. They are actual believers who are in danger of returning back to the Levitical book of the law system. But there's no book of the law tutor to them that is available anymore. If they do try to return, they will be physically destroyed by the Romans and face the judgment that fell upon the nation for rejecting the Ruach HaKodesh and calling it a demon in Moshiach. If they do try to go back to the book of the law, they are in fact rejecting the high priesthood of Melchizedek. They're rejecting the covenants of promise and it will be impossible for those who have had the five spiritual experiences to be renewed. Thus, they would condone by their re-identification with the book of the law regime the decision of the nation that rejected Moshiach's high priesthood on the basis of him being demon-possessed. Secondly, it will put Moshiach to an open shame because it would talk of an incomplete priesthood transference, an incomplete priesthood, and an incomplete salvation. If Yahusha priesthood cannot be on earth, as many within the Levitical hierarchy peddle today, then I think they're in very much this danger of falling into this category. It's really talking about you don't have the options that you think that you do. If you've truly pressed into Mashiach, they must press on to maturity or else they won't lose their salvation, but they will put themselves back under the judgment of 70 of the common era. The judgment for the unpardonable sin and they will die a physical death. Throughout the last five chapters, we can see that the judgments the author have been dealing with, are they spiritual or are they physical judgments? The last five chapters, they've all been physical judgments, not spiritual judgments. And I think he'll continue to do so as we read on in successive chapters, their physical judgments. Just like the Exodus generation at Kadesh Barnea, these believers are in danger of making an irrevocable decision after which it will be impossible for them to change their minds. Remember, let's go up and possess the land. But what did they say? They sent spies in. And once they did that, even later when they said, oh, okay, now we'll go up before them. Moshe said, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Oh, no, we'll go up. We changed our mind. It was an irrevocable decision that they made. Even if they decided to do what was right, but later it was wrong. That's what the author's talking about. It's a physical judgment. Because you know what? You have an opportunity, and I know this. I know this. The reason that I'm standing up here today, because this same thing happened to me in 1996. I was given the opportunity to speak and teach the word. And I was terrified. And I had the fear of man inside of me. And everything in my being said no. But I heard the voice of Yahuwah through the spirit in me say, I have purchased you. Your life is not your own. And if you deny me now before men, I will deny you. 
You go and speak because your life is not your own. And I have said yes every time anybody has ever asked me to speak or teach his word. Even when I have, yes, yes, yes. And eventually, now you can't stop me talking. But it was not that way. I'm not naturally a speaker. But he takes the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And he will train you up and he will educate you. That's what he'll do. But if I had said no then, my life would be a different story. Heaven forbid. Heaven forbid. And if I had come back years later and said, you know what? No, I think I will go now and talk. I would have fallen flat on my face. It would have been a work of man, would it not? Because he would have passed me over and gone and found the next obedient person. You see, this is the thing. Timing is everything. Timing is everything. Yes, yes, yes. Just like the Exodus generation at Kadesh Barnea, these believers, they were in danger of making that irrevocable decision, after which it would have been impossible to change their minds. And this decision would render severe physical judgment and bring death upon them. To cement in, cement in this interpretation of, chapter t- of, of the 10th interpretation, let's look at the linguistic parallels with the Kadesh Barnea generation in the fourth verse. Look at this. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened... And have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Ruach HaKodesh. And have tasted the Tov word of Yahuwah and the powers of the Olam Haba. And they fall away to renew them again to Teshuvah. Seeing they crucify by themselves the son of Yahuwah again and they put him to an open shame. Right here you can see the linguistic parallels with what I've just read you with the Kadesh Barnea generation. Look at it. When they arrived at Kadesh Barnea, they'd already seen the pillar of fire and cloud, hadn't they? Well, what is that? They'd been enlightened. It's right there. They'd already seen the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They had already been enlightened. Then the next thing. They tasted the heavenly gift. Well, where? Where? I don't see that. They ate the manna. They tasted the heavenly gift. Then they were, mar- they were made partakers of the Ruach HaKodesh. Well, when was that? The 70 elders went up and they dined with the Master Yahuwah. All of this. All of this. They witnessed the giving of the covenant and the miracles of Moshe. Well, what's that? They tasted the good word of Yahweh in its covenant form of un it was undefiled, perfect, holy. They tasted it was the scroll was laid out and it was splattered with blood and ratified. They tasted the good word of Yahweh like no one ever had before. They tasted the powers of the age to come. Like the Exodus generation, these were redeemed people that our author was talking to. They were in danger, just like their forefathers, of not pressing on. 
There's no time to pause. There is no time for us to send spies out. Oh, well, you know, uh, 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 well, can, can, I, can, I, can, I, can I think about it? Maybe send some spies out? No! We have got to go up at once and possess the land. Don't draw back. There's no time to pause and send spies out. Why? Because you don't trust Yahuwah? When Yahuwah offers you something, we must go up at once and possess it. Otherwise, he'll pass you over and he'll go to the next person. We have to. That is so, I have learned that the hard way and the easy way. 1996, it was hard, but it was easy because from then on, it's always been with me. It's always been because I know, I know. You may not like me, you may love me. I'm like Marmite. Some people love me, some people hate me. But there's one thing that I do know. I am despicably wicked above all, and I know where I began. And it was a broken, bankrupt man. And any goodness in me that you see, it's all him. I give him all the glory, and I'm the yes man. Yes, yes, yes. Because he can build with that. He can work with that. He can frame with that. And that's what he does. And he puts the wise, the fool, the wise, the proud to shame because of the foolish and hum- foolish and humble. It's amazing. And I look over, I look at you all, and I think of the testimony that we all have together. We're all from such different walks of lives, but all of our stories the same. He took people at a time in their life, and he transformed and redeemed them, and then he did a miracle. Did a miracle. Did a miracle. You see, the Romans, the Romans were starting to appear like those giants. Well, there's giants. We're like grasshoppers. And the Romans were starting to appear like the giants in the land to our audience. Giants that were living in cities behind impregnable walls. That's was the, that was the problem with the Kadesh Barnea generation, wasn't it? Well, there's giants living in cities but behind impregnable walls. And this is the parallel. And this is the parallel for us today. You're starting to see. I mean, you see these police and these officers. They are just jacked up, aren't they? I mean, the English Bobby, you know, he's a scrawny little guy walking along with a billy club. You come over here and they're... I mean, they have got the full combat gear. They've got thighs on their arms. And I mean, it's, it, it's like Delta Force when you're downtown. What's going on? Well, they're hired mercenaries that are contracted out by the FBI. And, you know, but that's another story. But these, they appear, they appear like giants behind impregnable walls of the New World Order. But Yahweh will bring that down when he wants to bring that down. And he says not to be afraid of all of that. But that is that is what the new world order are doing is trying to build up this 
force of giants behind impregnable walls to intimidate you so that you won't go up at once and possess all that he has for it. And it is escalating and they are building and arming and building and arming and intimidating. When I first came to America in 1991, it was a huge transition for me to see the Bobby on the street armed. But back in the day, Seattle Police Department, they wore a nice dress, starched shirt, and they had the nice little butter. I mean, they looked civilized, and they looked like they were more like community officers. Today, it's got nothing to do with community relations because there's intimidation from the beginning. If you want to be at ease and have make the public at ease, don't dress like you're about to drop from, um, from a black hawk, right? Because that doesn't really breed community relations. It doesn't. It breeds intimidation by force. And you wonder why you get the reactions that you get. Because this is all globalism that is coming down to unassuming officers in the field. That are getting actually hijacked by the new world order. Many of our great men in uniform in this nation don't realize that the nation has been sold out. And you can get a state trooper that's doing his diligent job, not realizing that they get sold out to the feds, and the feds are then bringing in contractors private contractors, and the next thing, the state police or the local police, they can't do their jobs properly. It's a crazy world. And many, many people get into the police and um, the state for, for um, patrol for, for the right reasons, not realizing at the top These are contracted and sold out to the globalists and the new world order. And if you speak out, it can be your very life. It can be your very life. The point is, don't be intimidated by the giants in the land with the impregnable walls so it may seem. In the day of the Kadesh Barnea generation, they saw it in the land. In the author's day, The Romans were escalating and they were growing. And in our day, we see it with the New World Order and the Illuminati that have hijacked the government and many, many of the other nations. But do not be intimidated. You walk with Yahuwah and he can crumble anything and bring in his millennial reign. So to conclude this section, the audience, they didn't have the options that they thought they had. They didn't have the option of giving up their salvation and retreating back into the book of the law regime. They didn't have the option of being saved again later when the persecution from the giants, the Romans, subsided because that would require the re-crucification of the Mashiach. They must go up at once and possess the good land that had been promised to them by Yahusha and was being announced to them by our author. For those who wanted to go under the book of the law and the sacrificial system, it means they would place themselves back under the curse of the book of the law once again. 
Galatians 3.10. The end product is whose end is to be burned. And this speaks of an eschatological perspective. The judgment seat of Mashiach. You see, our our poor choices will result in discipline in this life and a loss of rewards in the next life. And we'll get stuck in the wilderness and we'll die never possessing the land promises that are for us in this life. Don't do that. You see, Israel didn't have the option, did they, of going back to Egypt. They didn't have the option, though some would call for it. Well, let's go back to Egypt where we had flesh pots and garlic butter on everything. That Anything tastes good with enough garlic butter in Egypt. But it doesn't mean that it's for you. But they didn't have the option of going back into Egypt. They didn't have the option of returning to slavery to become an unredeemed people again, did they? They didn't. And by the same token, these believers, they won't go back to an unsaved state, but will remain in the wilderness of spiritual immaturity and die with a loss of rewards in the next life. Let's look at verse 7. For the earth which, which drinks in the rain that comes upon it and brings forth plants fit for them by whom it was tilled, receives the brachot from Eloah, the blessings from Eloah. But that which bears thorns and thistles is rejected and is near to cursing, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we expect better things from you and things that accompany salvation. That's why we speak like this. For Yahweh is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of Ahava, love, which you have shown toward his name. In that you have served the Israelite Kedoshim, the saints, and still do serve them. And we desire that every one of you show the same eagerness to the full assurance of your tikvah, your hope to the end. That you not be lazy in the malchut, the kingdom, but followers of them who through the emunah, the faith and patience, will inherit the promises for when Yahuwah, made of promise to Avram, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely in brachot, blessings, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men truly swear by the greater than themselves, and in every dispute among them, the true settlement, is by the oath. In like manner, Yahuwah willing more abundantly to show to the heirs of the promise that his promise was unchangeable, sealed it by an oath that by two immutable things, the promise of the tikvah, the hope in which it was impossible for Yahuwah to lie, we might have a strong encouragement We who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the tikvah, the hope set before us, which hope, tikvah, we have as an anchor of our soul, both sure and firm. 
and that tikva enters within the veil. There, Yahusha has previously entered in for our own sakes. Even Yahusha made a Kohen Haggadol, a high priest, Leolam Vayed, forever and ever, after the order of Malkit Zedek. Our author is admonishing his audience to press in, go past the elementary principles of the faith, faith, to obtain everything that's in view, not to be distracted by the jocked up Roman army that's all jacked up and ready to come, these walls that seem impenetrable. No, to just to press on to the faith. And why? Because Yahweh in Genesis 15, in Genesis 12, excuse me, Yahweh in Genesis 12 swore by an oath to Abraham that he would what? Bring into fruition this whole covenants of promise. The Malkitzedic realm of reality that we've covered in the whole Malkitzedic series is sealed by the oath of Genesis 12. It's confirmed by the oath again of Psalm 110. And then it is confirmed and transferred in by the oath of the trespass offering that Caiaphas put the Moshiach under, and Moshiach testified that yes, he is the Malkit Zedek, and Caiaphas shredded his garment, nullifying his priesthood. The book of the law system, the regime of the Levites, is now abolished and passed away, and now you're in the full Malkit Zedek realm, which you have to press on to, because this is the maturity, the meat of the word, You have to move past these elementary principles. That's the thrust of the chapter. And he's going to pick up next week and go deep into the Malkitzedic. But he had to take some time off and address these elementary principles. Because they would never progress further unless they understood that it was time for them to take the next step. So there's four facts in closing that are given concerning the hope, the tikva of Yahweh. Number one, it's an anchor to our soul. Think about it. An anchor to our soul. It will help us from what? From drifting and avoid the problems that we encountered with the audience in chapter 2, verse 1. It's like a dock, the Malkitzedic dock that we tie to that will stop us from drifting with the tide of the new world order yeah. number two their hope is sure and it's indestructible that's it it's indestructible our hope is sure and it is indestructible number three it's steadfast and it provides strength my hope provides me strength When I feel weak, when I feel defeated, and I often do out there fighting that system. But ultimately, my hope is what gives me strength to overcome my weaknesses, to overcome my sins, my transgressions. When I do something I know I shouldn't have done, it's my hope. I know that he has not got me this far, that he's not going to forsake me. If he can deliver me from those massive, huge, outward sins that everybody could see 25 years ago, he can deliver me from the inner struggles that maybe you don't see, but my family sees. 
the way I raise my voice, the way I snap, you know, things that I shouldn't be doing, that I struggle with, that I saw when I was raised, that my parents saw when they were breaking the generational chains. That's the hard work, right? That's the deep work. That's the stuff that we really need to get past. You know, that stuff that's so ingrained in you, you've been doing it for 50 years, that you're just like, no, and you, you, you want to make the commitment. You make the commitment, but it keeps on coming up. But then you start to recognize it. That's a huge step that you even recognize it. Because once you start to recognize it, then you can start to crush it, and he can start to work in that realm of your life. And then guess what? When you're delivered from that, yeah, another one to come up. It'll be uglier and deeper, and it won't be even, it'll be less obvious except to your spouse and your children, those close to you. Number three, it's steadfast and it provides inner strength. And number four, it's in the very presence of Yahuwah, behind the veil, in the Holy of Holies, the Kadosh HaKedoshim, in the heavenly tabernacle. By mentioning the order of Zedek again, our author is giving us hope, isn't he? He's saying, you're ready now to press into the meat. And now we're going to go into the meat because we've dealt with the elementary principles, admonished you to move past them. We spent a whole chapter. We had to take a break for a whole chapter. Who knows how long that was in the reality of the word. Could have been months that he was with them saying, okay, okay, because, you know, in chapter 5 he was talking about Zedek, and now, you know, he's, he's had to take a break for a while because they weren't ready for what he's about to give them. They, wouldn't have, they would have choked on it. They would have choked on it. But now our author picks up where he left in chapter 5, verse 10. After now encouraging them to press on to maturity, they should be ready, hopefully, to hear the Malkitzedic message. Because he had to hold their hands for a whole chapter to wean them off the milk with stern warnings in preparation to swallow with veracity the meat of what he is now going to prepare for them which is the Malkitzedek. It's the meat. So much to think on, so much to meditate, but I tell you what, we are a blessed people because many of you are chowing down on the meat and just serving it up left, right, and center. That's amazing to me. That's amazing because our author, he had to take a whole break to admonish his audience because they weren't even ready for what many of you are now digesting. Questions, comments, blessings, yes. All right, there we go. Oh, the four? Four facts? Four facts concerning the, the hope that's within us? You're saying five. No, there's four facts, but then we've done, I've, I've gone through like 10, 10, and then five. We've done quite a few number things today. I don't know why. I was in a number thing this week, apparently. We've got five, we'll do 10 of these, we'll do four of those, half a dozen of those, and a couple of pairs of these. Which ones? All of them. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
Give us some word on that. Give us some interpretation of that. I love it. Oh, they must be from the holdout states, man. Texas or down there, those, the, those holdout states, yes. FEMA region what? What region? FEMA region what? FEMA region three. We love you, FEMA region three. What region are we up here? Nine. Bloody nine, crying out loud. <laughs> Oh, all right, right, right. I thought you were telling me about five gifts now. All right, let's see. Oh, the five gifts, yes. Oh, I've got lots of fives. Oh, the five. Okay, right, right, right. Okay. Oh, the five spiritual privileges. Is that what we're talking about? Okay, the five spiritual privileges. That came from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3. Um, Verse 3, 4, 5, and 6. And number one was, these are the things that you want to taste, that you want to taste. These are the five spiritual privileges. But once you've tasted them, this is showing you that you are a part of the faith, that you are in the faith. So you don't want four because then you've got a big problem there. But you've also got a problem if you've got the five thinking that you can draw back because you can't because you're locked in all the way to the kingdom. There is no turning back. Does that make sense? So it's five alive. All the way. Number one, a once and for all enlightenment. Number two, they've tasted the heavenly gift. Number three, partakers of the Ruach HaKodesh. Number four, tasted the good word of Yahuwah. And number five, tasted the powers of the age to come. Five alive. Blessings and shalom. Abba Yahweh, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you for the hope, the tikva, the hope that is within us. We pray, Abba Yahweh, that you would truly, truly draw us closer to you each and every moment as we're in prayer, as we're in word, as we're in action, as, as we are in holy kadosh deed. In Yahusha Amashiach's mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right.